Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the Oxford Journal Global Summetry. It's my real pleasure today to introduce Peter Fever. Peter is a professor of political science at Duke University, where he's also a professor of public policy. He is the director of the Triangle Institute uh, for Security Studies, and he's also the director of the Duke Program in American Grand Strategy. In the years 2005-2007, Peter took a leave from Duke, and he was appointed a special advisor for strategic planning and institutional reform at the National Security Council at the White House. Peter has written extensively on civil-military relations, on nuclear weapons, and nuclear strategy. This is episode 19, and it continues uh, our discussions in the series, Shaking the Global Order, um, American Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump. I was particularly interested in talking to Peter because there had been a recent release by the Trump administration of the national security strategy, and I wanted to explore with him uh, the various aspects of that uh, strategy. I also, of course, was very interested in hearing his views on how the Trump administration had handled trade policy and trade negotiations, uh, nuclear policy, particularly around Korea, and more generally, uh, relationships with allies and adversaries. So let's join in in the conversation with Peter Fever. So uh, welcome, Peter. It's a real pleasure to have you with us on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Great. Um, so uh, let's start off with um, the recently um, published national security strategy uh, of the Trump administration. And, and maybe you can describe a little bit about uh, what it is and what its function uh, is for any administration. Well, this is a document that Congress has required administrations to produce ever since the Goldwater-Nichols Act in late 80s. And the genesis of it was the sense that uh, the Soviet Union was beating the United States in terms of long-range, big-picture strategy, that the U.S. had too much of a short-sighted focus and uh, dealing with the inbox and one cr damn crisis after another kind of approach to foreign policy, whereas the Soviet Union was playing chess and, the, and we were playing checkers. Of course, the great irony is within a few years, the Soviet Union collapses and <laughs> – the U.S. Uh, the U.S.'s checkers game looks a little bit better than it did maybe at the time that they're writing it. But, but the critique that the that administration struggled to do integrative strategy that way uh, balances across all elements of national power and that weighs trade-offs. That critique, of course, has a lot of merit to it. And the document was designed to force the administration to wrestle with that and, and put something on paper in the president's voice or at least signed by the president so it was authoritative. Mm -hmm. Now, ever since, it's come uh, – every time an administration releases one, uh, they generally have come about one per term. Bush, did, Bush 43 did one in the first term, one in the second term. Obama did one in the first term, one in the second term. It's my understanding that's what President Trump plans to do as well. When they're released, uh, people say, oh, golly, this is not nearly as strategic as I hoped. There's too much uh, platitude language in it. It's, um, it's not explicit about the trade-offs. It doesn't do hard uh, core prioritization. All of those critiques have merit. But uh, – and I admit I'm biased. I'll explain why in a moment. But I still think the document has value. Uh, first, it requires the administration to think through the logic of of what their grand strategy is, what what do they think America's role in the world is, and and how do they see it, uh, you know, working across regions and across functional areas. And the act of drafting it forces the administration to confront uh, issues that they have uh, not paid attention to because they're less of lower urgency, and or confront contradictions. Um, now, what you're left with is a document that 
is sort of the administration in its best possible self self regard, and there's large gaps between what they say they'll do and what they end up being able to do. Mm-hmm. But it's still a useful window into the thinking of the administration. And I should say I'm biased because uh, I had the privilege of working on two of these national security strategies. I was the junior staffer on President Clinton's national security staff in 93-94 working on his first one. And then I headed the office in Bush 43, the second term, mm-hmm. uh, that that wrote uh, Bush's second national security strategy. So I'm, I'm, there's kind of a tiny little club of people who work on these documents, and we tend to uh, think that they um, are worth reading. Sounds sounds good. Now, you after the release of the of the Trump national security strategy, you wrote a piece in Foreign Policy, and you suggested. But I have a more positive than expected reaction. Why did you come up with that view? Well, uh, for a number of reasons. The, the one less important one is I, I gave them credit for delivering it in the first year. Um, the the law requires that it come out even sooner than that, but no administration has ever been able to meet the the deadline. Um, and I bet money on the well, just figuratively bet my friends inside that they wouldn't be able to do it, but they did. So uh, that that's an achievement in and of itself. Um, but then, of course, comparing it to the um, somewhat. Uh, Disor- uh, disorganized or sense of uh, disorganization that, and even dysfunction uh, that sometimes attends the the Trump administration in national security and foreign policy, uh, it was an achievement to produce a document that that held together reasonably well that that was um, uh, systematic and and and. It, to a great extent, responsible in the claims and uh, strategies it was outlining. And then the third uh, related point is that uh, I saw in this document um, more of the what I would consider to be mainstream Republican views of how foreign policy should go and much less of the abandoned wing of um, uh, sort of radical – uh, change, uh, and so that was encouraging because I think the the mainstream Republican um, view of where where to take American foreign policy is has mostly been vindicated by events, certainly in, in the last uh, five to ten years, and uh, whereas the some of the more uh, um, extraordinary rhetoric coming out of the Trump campaign and occasionally out of the Trump White House uh, would have taken us in um, very different and dangerous directions. So I saw this as a reversion back to a more stable uh, center line. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now you did you pointed out that you know the the four pillars that were identified in the document, and you in particular in your article pointed out that. Um, uh, like the previous administration, that is the Obama administration, it, it did identify as a national security strategy um, uh, 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 pillar uh, promoting uh, prosperity. And I wanted to ask you about that just briefly, because if you, you know, notwithstanding that they do talk about it, uh, the reality is that here's a president comes in, several days after he comes in, he uh, withdraws from the TPP. He threatens to terminate NAFTA and continues to do so apparently. <clears throat> and the Korea-U.S. free trade agreement. He had kind of touted bilateral arrain- or agreements, but we don't see any, nor are there any apparently on the horizon. So, I mean, unless you completely reject the notion of uh, trade liberalization and investment and so forth, open trade, you know, the distinction here is pretty large. There's a big gap. Right. So there's two, uh, I think you're conflating two separate critiques, and I'm sympathetic to both of them, but let me uh, disaggregate them. One is uh, that does the document uh, identify plausible ways of achieving the goals that it's setting out? 
to achieve. You know, is it right? <laughs> is it correct, for instance, uh, in its strategic orientation? And um, the the praise I gave it was even antecedent to that. You know, is it right to identify domestic economics as a national security uh, matter of interest? And I'm saying, yes, it's right to do that. Now, the next question is, do they have they identified a plausible strategy for achieving it? Um, and I share your critique. I think that the administration er- has erred in the way it has um, uh, approached trade. I w- if I had had the presidents here, I would have recommended against leaving TPP. I think that was a mistake. Um, and while I think that we can certainly look for bilateral sweeteners on NAFTA, and we should have should be looking for bilateral sweeteners on NAFTA, and we could have also pursued bilateral sweeteners on TPP, uh, I do not think we, we should blow up the deals. Um, and I think blowing up those deals is not in our a long-term economic interest, nor in our long-term national security interests. So, I agree with you that uh, there's a gap, but uh, there's a hole in that part of the strategy that he's identified prosperity as a as a goal. And let's give him credit; he's identified that uh, that the uh, bipartisan Democrat and Republican consensus in favor of free trade has left behind some Americans and not done enough to account for that and mitigate the the damage of that. I I think we can accept that Trump's critique of previous um, effects of trade as a a reasonable critique, but I think he's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So that's the first kind of critique. The second one, which doesn't apply so much in trade, but applies in other areas, say the language on Russia is, you know, how the the gap between rhetoric and, and action. Um, and so the rhetoric on Russia is, is actually pretty good in the national security strategy. Um, pretty good meaning it properly identifies uh, that that Putin and has been trying to undermine the United States and identifies that as a threat. Uh, now the actions of the administration uh, have not been commensurate yet with that. Uh, strategic insight. And so you can criticize the administration in places where it, it sets out a goal but but hasn't lived up to it yet. And Russia policy might be one of them. Do you have any indication from your colleagues and so forth that there is likely to be a, a, a in, the, in the near term, a Russia strategy which in fact deals with uh, the cybersecurity question and the effort to undermine uh, the U.S. electoral political system? Well, that's that's a particularly fraught issue for this administration, uh, as as you know. I actually think there's a, there's a pretty strong consensus across the administration now the, the, uh, that um, that Russia is an adversary. There were some pockets that thought there was an opportunity to you know do some kind of grand reset bargain with Russia, uh, but the folks who are most optimistic about that are gone or marginalized. Um, and so I think there's a broader consensus that Russia is a challenge that has to be managed. The sticking point is that that problem has become contaminated with the question of, um, uh, you know, the whole controversy, which is highly, highly politicized now. Controversy about not just what did Russia do during the 2016 election, but what did the Trump campaign know about what Russia was doing and and what, if anything, did they do in concert with that? Um, And those are highly charged, politicized questions that have made it hard for this administration to have a fully integrated, well-developed, well-explained Russia policy. Hmm. Let me look at one other pillar that was identified and uh, uh, is worth They're all worth exploring, but let me look at this question of American values. It kind of comes from, in part, from this issue of the of the Russian inquiry, I suppose. Uh, You indicated that uh, promoting American values represented something of a straddle within the document. That is, uh, in some parts of the document, um, the the document suggests that the U.S would not impose its values on others, 
and yet in other uh, places within the document, it, it suggests that the United States and this administration would champion U.S. values. Now, uh, it's become apparent that on a variety of uh, travels, whether it's the Secretary of State, Tillerson, or the President himself, particularly uh, with Asia, but also with Europe, uh, that, you know, um, the, the administration, and in particular uh, President Trump, has been has refrained from criticizing openly um, uh, the uh, behavior, some of the behaviors, uh, and the um, uh, the limitations that governments have put on domestic freedoms. Um, and then you look at most recently at Iran, and you know, and this administration, of course, was very strident in criticizing uh, the Iranian administration publicly and openly uh, over uh, the uh, crackdown on domestic audiences in Iran and, in fact, even called a, a UN Security Council emergency meeting, which, as you know, it's an Article 7 kind of meeting, which is a threat to international peace on the basis of the Iran demonstrations. So what, what does this suggest about the way in which this administration views this question of values? Okay, so uh, there's a lot of material there to um, react to. Let me uh, pick apart uh, – pick a couple threads to pull on. The first is um, I did credit them with their uh, language on human rights because I was afraid it was going to go – lean much further in the direction of denigrating the value of human rights and the importance of human rights. And there, there were occasional moments – particularly during the campaign and and some flights of uh, campaign rhetoric fancy that that suggested that they were going to uh, walk away entirely from uh, the uh, championing human rights uh, as a uh, uh, which has been a you know several century long um, pillar of American foreign policy particularly at the rhetorical level uh, and they seem to occasionally break with it, and Secretary Tillerson in particular struggled to talk about it uh, in ways that would reassure uh, folks at home and abroad on this question. So I was against the backdrop of that. I thought the language was pretty good, uh, and the the language uh, that you cite about not imposing our values, well, actually Bushwood, who's – widely criticized for being overemphasizing human rights would say the same thing. No one in the U.S. wants to impose its values on others. Uh, and and even when he's, President Bush would talk about promoting democracy, he always said that it would take form and use institutional adjustments suitable to the culture of the, the country in question. So um, the the language that is in the NSS is pretty close to the language that you could get in other uh, administrations. Now, it, other administrations, particularly the Bush administration, was perhaps more eloquent and more uh, fulsome in its language. And I accept that critique would have been better for a little bit more if I had been drafting it, might have leaned on that pedal a little more. Um, uh, in, but, but compared to what it could have been, I think it was pretty good. Now, that being said, does this administration have a implementation strategy that applies it consistently across every country? No. Nor did any other administration in U.S. history, right? We've always found it difficult to uh, apply this consistently, and we've always faced trade-offs. Um, and some administrations, President Bush uh, in particular, were cut the trade-offs leaning in one direction uh, because of the experience that they had. So Secretary uh, Condoleezza Rice was quite eloquent on the uh, point um, that you know we had tried to sacrifice um, human rights for stability, and we got neither in the Middle East. And, and so we have to be willing to, to admonish even our longtime allies like uh, Egypt or and longtime partners like um, the Saudi and Gulf states on the question. Even so, 
there was a limit how far we pushed them. Uh, even in the Middle East, where the president made such a big uh, um, uh, rhetorical point on this, then I think you're seeing a similar kind of ad hoc case by case application in the Trump administration. What's different is that President Trump also seems to um, offer rhetorical support for what looks like you know outright authoritarian tendencies, uh, whether it's from our allies or or it seems to indulge it in some of uh, countries like China and, and Putin. And that's that's unhelpful from a rhetorical standpoint. In point of fact, the administration isn't doing anything on the policy level to uh, foster that. But but rhetorically, I think that's a that's a mistake. Uh, and if you notice, that's not amplified in the national security strategy. So that that seems more to be a presidential flourish, um, often when he's speaking extemporaneously, rather than you know in a set piece fashion. Uh, now you asked about Iran. That's that's a di- that's a different matter. Every administration uh, has recognized that uh, the U.S. has no fundamental conflict with the Iranian people. That our problem is with the Iranian regime, and indeed, what the recent protests revealed was just how big a problem the Iranian people had with the Iranian regime as well. Uh, in that sense, the you know U.S views were somewhat in solidarity with the uh, protesters who saw that the regime was cheating them as well as the U.S. thought the regime was cheating us. And and some of the things that the protesters seemed to want, which is Iranians spending their money at home rather than promoting terrorism in the region and abroad, is exactly what the U.S. wants as well. So I'm not surprised that President Trump said what he said in solidarity with the the protesters um and i think it probably was the right thing to do under the circumstances i think president obama missed an opportunity in 2009 uh, and got roundly criticized by myself and others for it uh that being said the administration is not uh, actively promoting regime change by force in in Iran, and and that uh, in that sense uh, he's sticking with uh, a little bit closer to the several administration long policy of pressure on the regime, containment of the regime, uh, and waiting you know time biding our time until the Iranian people. Uh, get the reform that they so uh, devoutly want. Um, fair enough. But just comment briefly on uh, it's not just Trump's statement, although Trump's statement was very evident, but this effort, I mean, this willingness to go to the UN and insist on an emergency meeting of the UN Security Council, I, it doesn't square with me, but maybe maybe I'm missing something. Well, um, it, it it points to uh, a reality, which is that even an administration that has expressed so much skepticism about the utility of international organizations, uh, nevertheless, sees that that there is a vital role for the UN to play, and I think it's uh, uh, I think a better way to characterize the Republican view of international organizations, at least the 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 mainstream Republican view, it's uh, a tough love or more in sorrow than in anger. You know, the, that the UN is failing to live up to what it could live up to. It's failing to address what it could address. Instead, it becomes a um, talking club to bash the United States and, and our allies. Uh, but... And then when other bad things are happening, it goes silent. And and so uh, every U.S. administration has has wanted to pressure the U.N. to to speak up on matters that the U.S. cares about as well, and not simply always be used as a club to beat the United States. And I think that's the spirit in which uh, I suspect the the Trump administration went to the Security Council. I don't think they were. Uh, seriously expecting that the Security Council would pass uh, uh, 
Chapter 7 resolution that would authorize all necessary means, uh, something you know, that would be obviously uh, a bridge too far. And I'm sure, and I don't think that's what the Trump administration wanted. And, and what did they want? Just to, to portray? The well, they wanted to speak out in solidarity for uh, the Iranian people who who were the victims here. And that, I think, it was as uh, simple as that. All right. So, in effect, you're saying, well, it, it at least takes something positive uh, from your perspective, that, in fact, they went to the United Nations, the international institution, as a platform to deal with at least this at a rhetorical level, if nothing else. I, th I think that's right. I, I think that the... Um, the administration wants to put more pressure on the Iranian regime, and calling them out in the Security Council puts more pressure on the regime. I think optimistically, they might also believe that uh, international um, isolation and you know admonishment in an, in the UN might temper a little bit the. Uh, the viciousness of the regime in, in cracking down. Uh, that That's an optimistic hope, but it's one worth trying. Okay. All right. Well, uh, let me try to sum up some of your, you know, your total, big view on, on the document uh, before we leave it. And to do that, I wanted to reference our colleague, uh, Corey Shockey from the Hoover Institution and soon to be at IISS, and she wrote a piece a day after I think you wrote the piece, your own piece on the NSS, um, in foreign policy as well. Uh, her view, of course, was much more negative. She says, its main problem, though, is that the text is implausible as either a description of administration policies or a likely template for its priorities and spending. The text is implausible as a description of the president's actual views. So, what's your thought about that, and how, how do you react to her, you know, sig significantly negative uh, appraisal? Well, I I think there's there's more overlap in our views maybe than uh, you're giving credit for. The one the fifth of my takeaways, I believe, was this precisely this question of. Uh, how much does this actually reflect what the administration is going to do or has done um, and versus uh, this is what um, the national security team would like the administration to be doing but has not always been able to get the administration to do. And Corey was uh, making that point in her with her customary brio and verve, she's a, a wonderful writer and a, um, uh, you know, she has a way with, with delivering the uh, the skewer into the inner most uh, gizzards. And so I, 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 I'm giving a more generous read, saying that with this document, you have a sense of what the administration uh, wants to do, and she's saying, but they haven't been doing it. And how plausible it is, is it that the president himself would keep doing these things when push came to shove? Well, I think he's done more of it than some might have expected. Uh, he recertified – well, he didn't recertify, but he he found a straddle on the Iranian nuclear deal that uh, allowed him to avoid uh, doing what some had wanted him to do, which is to completely blow up the deal. Uh, and which is what he clearly to do, but his advisors recognized that that would be uh, dis not in the U.S. interests, and so you know he he's found a, a more clever straddle, and he uh, ended up in the right answer on Afghanistan, even though it was he was clearly interested in finding other answers and when there wasn't another good one he ended up with the the least worst one which was uh, that policy and so on a number of occasions when you see the president exploring different options he has ended up uh in a better place than not on these big set piece decisions and so that that would be grounds for optimism and if Corey were on this 
conversation, I'd point her to that, and and then she'd point me to a whole bunch of other times when it went the other way, and so I I would agree with her. It's a mixed bag. Yeah, fair enough. And just for the audience to know, uh, we did do a podcast with Corey uh, not uh, long ago, actually. And so after listening to this podcast, hopefully uh, the audience can go listen to Corey talking about some of these issues as well. Um, but let me uh, let me uh, take you back just briefly to Iran. So what what is I mean, you, you're suggesting it's a straddle, the Iran um, decision, that is, to not certify, but then to throw it over to Congress to deal with the question of sanctions. Where do you see, though, uh, the Iran policy going, particularly in the light of the fact that the other powers, the P6, uh, 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 do not seem in any sense to be willing to follow the Trump administration on uh, this nuclear deal. So where do we go, or where does the Trump administration go on this policy? Well, you're putting me in a rock and a hard place here because you're talking to me the day before the administration announces what it's going to do, but I'm guessing the podcast will file afterwards. So you'll be able, to, everyone will be able to see how bad a uh, predictor I am. Uh, a bad pundit I am. But that being said, um, here's the case for kicking the can down the road a little bit further. Uh, and I'm not – I don't know for a fact that that's what they're going to do. Uh, I, I genuinely don't know. I'll make the case for and against, and you'll – and then uh, a good political scientist can always explain the past, whatever happened in the past. So whichever – whatever – does happen, then I invite the listener to listen to that part of my explanation. But here's the case for kicking the can down the road again. The the problem is that the critique, Trump's critique of the Iran deal is basically right, that it was not as good a deal as the Obama administration should have tried to get. And it front-loaded a lot of the benefits for Iran and uh, backloaded some of the benefits for the United States and also the way it was implemented by the Obama administration, it seemed to tie the hands of the Obama administration to not confront Iran on all of the other activities for fear that it would disrupt the nuclear deal. Now, all of that critique is right. But it's also the case that because of that, if you just blow up the deal, we're actually worse off uh, because Iran's benefits have already been pocketed to a great extent. And the, uh, as you pointed out, the, uh, our allies and partners are, would not likely join us in reimposing maximum pressure on Iran, especially if it looked that like the we were the ones to blow up the deal rather than Iran being the one to blow up the deal. Uh, and so we would be in the worst of both worlds. They would have gotten their benefits and we would have lost our um, uh, points of pressure on the Iranian regime. And so better, I think, to do the the straddle that they came up with, which is to not leave the deal, but to increase pressure or increase our the rigor with which we confront Iran on all of their other lines of activity that are um, uh, you know nefarious and un, and working against U.S. interests, regional stability, and ultimately global stability. So this is their support for terrorism, their missile proliferation, and so forth. And a further point for kicking the can down the road, the regime's brutal suppression of the protests is probably increases slightly the, the willingness of the European allies at least to be cautious about uh, rewarding Iran in the near term. And so if we don't upset the apple cart, probably the, there'll be net more pressure on Iran in a month's time than there would have been if we left the deal and blew it up. So that's the case for kicking the can down the road. The case for blowing up the deal is that it clearly is frustrating to the administration every period quarter to have to recertify. 
and um, it's becoming more and more of a of, you know of a fake crisis really to have to do this, um, and that's why uh, I, I could imagine that the that that President Trump, who said by golly he is not going to do this again, we've got to fix it, and now here we are, and it, he's faced with the same decision he was a quarter ago. Uh, I could see him just saying, I'm not going to put up with it anymore. The the way out of it is Congress should lift the requirement for quarterly certification. And then then we get out of this artificial time clock situation. That time clock may have made sense in the Obama administration when you had administration inclined to give Iran the benefit of too many doubts, but it doesn't that's not needed in this administration where the you know they they lean on the in the other direction but but blowing the deal up peter leaves the uranium you know, i mean you've already described the downside but most pertinently one downside is they simply begin to uh refine uranium again well the, it would open the door for them to do that of course which is something they'll be able to do in a in a decade's time anyway and so um you know, that is to say, the deal lapses in in uh, ten to fifteen years, and we're already what two years past that. So, um, you're right. It's a uh, the irony is the longer the deal that goes on, the more benefit it is to the to the those of us who want to delay their um, uh, their nuclear program. Let's turn to one other uh, crisis area then, Peter, and that is uh, Korea. There are persistent leaks uh, on uh, the Korean peninsula crisis that the U.S. military has tried in various ways to provide uh, uh, President Trump with some military options. It's been described in a variety of settings, including recently the Wall Street Journal, as the bloody nose strategy. Uh, that is, the United States would react to some nuclear or missile test with a targeted strike against a North Korea facility to bloody Pyongyang's nose and illustrate the high price the regime could pay for its behavior. The hope would be, according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, to make that point without inciting a full bore reprisal by North Korea. I mean, is there such a strategy? Um, and it's a, meaning a strategy that doesn't risk the loss of tens of thousands of lives for Koreans and for the United States, because there are a lot of Americans on the, on the peninsula. So is this at all a, you know, realistic well, North Korea is what's known as a wicked problem, uh, and that's where there are no good solutions. If there was a good solution, uh, one of the three previous administrations would have found it and implemented it. And instead, we have a, a bipartisan record, 25 years of failure. And Democrat administrations, Republican administrations have all failed – in the um, shared goal of preventing North Korea from crossing the nuclear threshold, and 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 now we're at the very very precipice of the last of the thresholds, North Korea having the capacity to deliver a nuclear weapon by missile to anywhere in the United States. We're very very close to them crossing that. What every administration said was an unacceptable uh, threshold, uh, and so uh, it. I think it's pretty clear that there will there's not a good solution that whatever solution we take will be uh bad and the question is which is the least bad option and the you identified the bad parts of a military strike there's really two types of military strikes one is a massive strike that would uh settle the matter once and for all, but at, at a high, high cost, a huge cost in human lives. 
largest in North Korean human lives, but also very substantial in South Korean and, and U.S., both military and, and civilian dependents living in, in South Korea. Um, not to mention environmental destruction and, and so forth. So that it's uh, that's a bad option. The uh, other end of the spectrum, though, is trying to live with the North Korean nuclear weapon. And this is bad for multiple reasons, one of them being that North Korea has sold every military technology they've ever created. And what is your confidence that North Korea will not sell its nuclear capability. Uh, moreover, North Korea has engaged in exceptionally risky behavior uh, even when their regime was at risk. What kind of risky behavior will they engage in when they have what they consider to be a regime guarantor? Third, how confident are you that the Japanese and the South Koreans will not decide they need a nuclear capability to match the North Korean nuclear capability? And how confident are you that a Japanese nuclear arsenal, South Korean nuclear arsenal, North Korean ar nuclear arsenal can be tolerated by China and the, the you know, quadrilateral deterrence <laughs> um, arrangements that that would entail can be safely managed in, in Northeast Asia indefinitely? Um, and so that looks really bad, too, is what I'm trying to say. So now we're left with, is there something else? And well, I don't know what the administration is thinking. I've read the same newspaper stories you have. Uh, how plausible is that scenario? It strikes me as um, as a reach. It strikes me as risky in the extreme, but I can imagine someone making the case for it along the following lines, which is that a North Korea can live with a bloody nose, but if they do a massive attack, they, the regime will be exterminated. Uh, and they that's something they will refuse to do. And so they'll take the bloody nose rather than be completely eliminated rather than signing their own death warrant by attacking massively. And that's that's the strategic logic behind it. And I can imagine someone making that case, but it would be an extraordinarily risky gambit for the president to, to make it. About as risky a choice as any U.S. leader has had to make. Aaron, yeah. Um, exactly. And I mean, uh, you know, and I understand you're going through... The, in quotes, the bad option. Um, you know, Richard Hawes, like you, kind of goes through the bad options, but he ends up, you know, he rejects the military options of whatever sort we're talking about um, and ends up really, uh, and he, in fact, not like you, not sure that the turn option works either, and he does also raise the questions of Japan and South Korea. Uh, but he ends up saying, well, really, the only thing we can do is uh, undertake a negotiation. Um, and he takes off the table, you know, the denuclearization strategy or option that this administration has been arguing the only basis upon which they would enter a negotiation. So I guess the second question for you is, uh, do you kind of agree that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, uh, negotiation is the best. And if so, what what are the requirements going in for the United States? Well, I have uh, thought that it is possible to sit down to negotiate with the North Koreans, uh, provided that they the the negotiations are structured so that they are under. Uh, maximum, they being the regime, is under maximum pain so that the longer this goes on, the more uh, pain they receive and or that their program is completely frozen so that the, the longer this goes on, they don't get any closer to uh, an advantage. Securing either of those things, though, is very, very difficult, and I'm not sure I would uh, 
enter into it just on the hopes that we could catch them if they were cheating because the truth is they've cheated every single time that we have uh, every deal that they have uh, negotiated they've cheated on and so this is not a regime that has a good track record in this regard so that's why I go back to maximum pressure and if you if you want this is the what I believe is the strategy that the administration is following it's called a rock the boat strategy and it's aimed as much at the Chinese as it is at the North Koreans. And it's designed to present the Chinese with a choice. Would you rather have war on the Korean peninsula or would you like to ratchet up the pressure on the North Koreans? And up until now, the choice has been, would you like the U.S. to have the monkey on its back or would you, China, like to ratchet up pressure? And they've always chosen, put the monkey on the U.S. back. Well, President Trump, I think, is trying to change that choice set for the Chinese, and he's gotten some success in it. The Chinese have put more pressure on North Korea in the last year than they had in the previous years. And so, But it's the rock-the-boat strategy is a very um, unsettling one. In fact, by design, it's meant to be unsettling. Sure. Uh, are you saying that they've reassessed the American position because of this administration, I mean, that the putting the the pain there and increasing it continuously has had its a positive effect, at least on the the Chinese. Well, I think that the, what I would say is that the Chinese have, I'm inferring based on the changed Chinese behavior, and the chi changed Chinese behavior is China is putting more pressure on North Korea than they were doing up until now. Why are they doing that? I think it's because the Chinese assess that uh, Trump is more likely to uh, go to war than President Obama was, and and that uh, they therefore the costs to China of just kicking this can down the road are that much higher. And and so that, that's what you do with the rock the bow. You threaten the the target of your diplomacy with an outcome that's bad for both of you, but uh, in an effort to get them to adjust their behavior. And but to pull that off, you have to be willing. You have to be seen as willing to choose something that's bad for both of you. And war on the North Korean Peninsula would be bad for both of us. And I think. The administration has signaled a greater willingness to at least contemplate that option than previous administrations were. Okay. Let me let me end here, uh, Peter, with what I always call the big question. And the big question is one uh, involving kind of the architecture of the international order, and the question being uh, in in this age of Trump and Trump foreign policy and the America First strategy and uh, calling out allies at various points in time and all the rest of it. But, you know, you know, are we likely to see a liberal order simply, uh, well, at best diminish, at worst just fall apart? I mean, what what is it that we're looking at in terms of kind of the structure? Because, of course, the structure was built on, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, American leadership. Right. I, of course, I've spent a lot of my professional career uh, talking with friends uh, in Canada and Europe who and Asia who have complained about American leadership, and I feel like you're about to get your, uh, you know, be careful what you devoutly wished for, <laughs> because the world without American leadership may be much, much worse for all of us. Um, so I agree with you that. The global order has been underwritten by American power and by uh, the willingness of successive administrations to shoulder what looks like a disproportionate amount of the burden for policing the commons and for um, providing a certain amount of order. And, and it was absolutely messy throughout the Cold War and afterwards. And, and U.S. leadership has has been flawed in many respects, but it's still been better on average than what the alternatives of the time were available. And I think it's better today 
continued U.S. leadership would be better today than the other things that are on the horizon to take U.S. place. And so one of my critiques of candidate Trump was that I didn't hear him uh, recognizing that in his campaign rhetoric. And I heard him flirting with a, a view that seemed to suggest that America was the problem, and if we could just cut, you know, get America home and focus on America, uh, the rest of the world could take care of itself. And that's, I think, a short-sighted view and a benighted view of American interests. And flipping back to our original uh, question about the national security strategy, I was encouraged to see um, appropriate language in, the, in Trump's national security strategy that ref recognized the value of American leadership uh, uh, at, in the, at the, the global level. So I agree that it's important. But uh, the, the institutions of the international order are under strain, and the underlying ch changes in the balance of power, the rise of China, uh, a, an assertive, even adventurous Russia, um, weakness in Europe, and then this rise of populism, and which leads to a more doubtful policy on the global scene. All of those things are strains that um, uh, are are a problem. And so I'm, you know, one of those who has has urged the administration to. Uh, not give in to the uh, a populist rhetoric and to uh, interpret their their key touchstone phrase America first to interpret America first in the most expansive and enlightened way uh, for it to look a lot more like the uh, long-standing American commitment to uh, support the international order. Because if we don't, the alternatives will be, in my judgment, much, much worse for American interests. And so uh, I, I think what we're seeing in this past year is that when there are doubts about American leadership, there are consequences from that. Frankly, I would say that's also true for the previous eight years, that there were doubts about America's leadership under President Obama. Uh, he he was personally very popular, but his policies were seen as walking back American commitments and American leadership, and that had consequences as well. And so uh, I urge the administration to uh, step up to the plate and to the challenges and to lead on the global stage. Well, Peter, I want to thank you very much for taking uh, this amount of time to explore some of the issues around uh, uh, American foreign policy in the age of Trump. Really do appreciate that. My pleasure. Look forward to uh, talking to you again sometime. Okay.